Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. In this episode, a wrongful death lawsuit has been filed against the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office regarding the deadly police shooting of a 46-year-old schizophrenic, Ricky Widden, by a former PBSO canine officer, Justin Rigney. I interviewed former FBI special agent and current criminal defense attorney from Palm Beach County, Stuart Kaplan, about his case, which heads to federal court on January 13th. Tell me what happened in this case. I represent three children whose father, Ricky Witten, had been suffering and had bouts with schizophrenia and some, obviously, some mental health issues uh, prior to December of 2016. As a matter of fact, uh, about two years prior in 2014, he actually was hospitalized. Uh, actually, PBSO uh, responded uh, pursuant to the request of his father, and it was without incident. As a matter of fact, uh, that one of the deputies who was involved in this particular shooting uh, that led to the death of Ricky Witten was actually the same deputy um, who Baker acted him. So he knew him, and he knew, knew him, he had, had contact with issues. the father, had contact with Ricky, had been to the house. Um, and as a matter of fact, just, you know, not to get off topic, but um, that became a big issue uh, during my discovery phase um, that this particular deputy, uh, Deputy Unger, failed to ever tell anybody on scene the night of this incident, hey, by the way, I know who this individual is. I've had contact with him prior. Well, why and, were they called to the scene and it was New Year's Eve, right? right. And so and- what happened was Ricky Witten's uh, family, his kids and the mother of the children, uh, who every year would travel up to Pennsylvania because uh, her family lives up there. And Ricky uh, was gainfully employed uh, with a pest control company, and it was a busy time of year. So routinely, uh, the children and the mother would drive up to Pennsylvania and be with her family, and that was not unusual. Uh, Ricky, uh, during that week uh, that the mother and the children were away, he started to uh, start uh, to have some issues where he recognized I was having some mental health issues. So maybe he wasn't sleeping well, he wasn't taking his medication, uh, he was overworking. Clearly, but he ended up staying he was unraveling. at his, Clearly, and he went out to his mom and dad's house and he stayed there leading up to the and night where of the incident. In Loxahatchee. Okay. And, and what the, year was this? Uh, December, uh, December of 2016. Okay. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up his mom. And he tells his mother and father, I feel that I am suicidal and starts to make all these crazy comments. And so uh, mom and dad get out of bed and they observe Ricky Wynn with a kitchen knife making all sorts of crazy uh, statements. And so mom, uh, Mrs. Wynn, gets on the phone and calls 911. She is on the phone with the 911 uh, PBSO dispatcher for over 45 minutes. Now, keep in mind, during that 45 minutes, Ricky Witten did not harm himself, did not harm his mother and father. And by the way, his niece was also in the house, uh, uh, a girl who I believe was 16 or 17 at the time. Uh, He was saying that he wanted to die. He didn't want to live anymore. Uh, And by the way, all of these statements are captured because once Mrs. Whitten is on the phone with the 911 operator, you can overhear all of Ricky's statements. And amongst those statements are, I would not hurt you, mom or dad, and I would not hurt anybody. But he's armed with a kitchen knife. He's armed with a kitchen knife. Wait, 45 minutes. How long did it take? Well, so you have the PBSO uh, road deputies show up on scene with a lieutenant and a sergeant. And these uh, people, I'm going to hold my tongue, 
decide that they are going to uh, summon a canine deputy as well. The canine deputy is a great distance away. So in the ensuing time, they're actually out on the road awaiting the arrival of the canine, which takes close to 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Now, the sheriff's office has a program where it's called the critical incident uh, people who have specialized training to try to Defuse open up, this, try right? to de-escalate yeah. these type of situations. Right. They go through a 80-hour uh, or 40-hour intensive class uh, practical exercise program where they learn de-escalation techniques. And basically, as in any walk of life, you try to build a rapport with this type of person who's in a state of emotional crisis. Well, so it was Ricky Widden, had he been drinking? Because no, was, no, so no, there was no alcohol involved. No, no, okay, no so alcohol. This was just, just he's just. There's in nothing a bout in his system. Mental, that they, no, in okay. fact, uh, in fact, uh, he has nothing in his system okay. that would uh, contribute to his state of mind, other than he's in a state of emotional crisis because he suffers from schizophrenia. Okay, and so uh, the lieutenant and the sergeant, nor anybody on scene, decides to contact or request a crisis intervention person who, and keep in mind, the mom is on the phone with the dispatcher, and you would think that the dispatcher also would request a CIT personnel. She does not. Hearing him in the background saying, I want to kill myself, and if they know he's armed with a knife. Right. So Justin Rigney arrives on scene with his dog, and they- So he's the canine officer for PBSO. And they form what is called a stick team. That is basically five deputies in a line behind a ballistic shield. Now, the first thing anybody would know that would be consistent with common sense is when you're dealing with someone who's in a state of emotional crisis, the last thing you want to try to do is increase the state of stress or the state of anxiousness or to escalate the situation. And any health, mental health professional will tell you. They've asked him to drop the knife with their guns drawn and he hasn't done it? Well, you have to understand they form this stick team, which is kind of like a SWAT tactical team. And of course, now Ricky Widden comes out of his house and they're shining his their flashlights in his eyes. And they say, we want to hear we want to talk to you. He says, please put your flashlights down. It's blinding me. And they say, we'll put our flashlights down when you drop the knife. So there's kind of like a stalemate in less than 50 seconds when Ricky Widden is retreating and trying to walk away from them. There's a shooting that results in his death. So in, in so in 45 minutes, he doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't hurt himself, doesn't hurt the mother and father and the niece that's in the house. In less than 50 seconds, when they converge in this uh, tactical assault, he's shot and killed. In the back? Well, several shots were in the back and several shots were in his front. And, he, and, and it's captured on video. Oh. And clearly is there's- Is that a, an officer's running, body camera? Uh, no, it was actually, uh, thankfully, on a neighbor, adjoining neighbor's oh. property on their surveillance camera. I ca- okay, so you've got video. Now, now, Karen, so there's a bigger issue here. Up until this shooting, PBSO would do their own officer-involved shootings. Given the amount of shootings that had happened prior to this date, Rick Bradshaw decided, I'm going to bring in FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, quote-unquote, to do an independent investigation into this officer-involved shooting, the FDLE investigators don't even conduct one interview. 
There is no independent investigation that is done. It's actually the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office that conducts the investigation. And all that FDLE does is copy and paste their reports into their report. Was uh, he ever fired, Justin Rigney? Or- he resigned. Uh, he ended up uh, bringing, and he has a pending whistleblower lawsuit against the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. He is alleging that uh, the Sheriff's Department neglected and abused uh, some of the canine animals. That has nothing to do with my lawsuit. That's a separate situation. Uh, the, the tragedy in all of this is I have three children who are left without their father. And uh, it it seems to me that there is no doubt, even by the admissions of the deputies, uh, that they failed to do what they were supposed to do. Why not just let the dog go? (laughs) You know, Karen, that's a great question. And you would think that any of the investigators who were into... Because they'll bite the arm and the knife will drop. uh, So, by the way, you know, you ask that as if it's such a simple question, right? It's an obvious one. You're a canine deputy. You're, you train these dogs to uh, be released, right. to be deployed. They're trained to capture the upper uh, extremities and pull the individual down and disarm them. And we see that all the time. Right. And and as the investigators and they that, waited forty five minutes that's to bring tool the dog in the there. Box. <laughs> you that question was never asked. Oh boy. Okay. So Justin Rigney. Um, has been cleared of this shooting. Completely exonerated. Which Ricky Widden was running, okay, he was armed with a kitchen knife, having a mental crisis. He's a schizophrenic. This was on New Year's Eve, December 31st in 2016. You're taking this case to trial, representing his family and his children. That is correct. uh, On January 13th. That is correct. And so... He actually was running toward the neighbor. Were they worried that he was going to stab the neighbor? Or what, 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 uh, what was the reasoning behind shooting him as he ran? Well, quoting Christopher Unger, um, I just felt that given the nature of the call and just what I felt, it was I knew we were going to have to use lethal force and it was something we needed to do. That was the mentality. And that's a quote from his own deposition that he just felt it was easier to just take this guy out. And so you say mental illness is not a crime. Mental because illnesses. he had nothing in his system, and he, he was no, he had said he wasn't no, going to hurt anybody. No, he, first of all, he was on his own property, and let's in just admittedly say, with a kitchen knife. At that point, and by the way, all the deputies concede he had not committed a crime that would escalate it or require an arrest. This unit that showed up, there were non-lethal bullets that were fired. So one of the deputies, a uh, Chad Easterday, was tasked with holding or carrying a 40 millimeter less lethal rifle it shoots basically a hard rubber round so they did try that well except that you do not and i underscore do not use that type of tool to de-escalate someone in a state of emotional crisis that is not the because uh, he got up after he was shot with well the it's not only bullets. you just don't use that show of force i mean that's a last you know, resort. You, 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 that is not one of the tools that you resort to in trying to de-escalate uh, this type of situation. And he still had the knife in his hand, even though he was shot well, with a rubber bullet. Uh, you know, most of the deputies say we never saw the knife until after he was shot and killed, and we rolled him over. Oh. So, um, you know, that's those are the facts. And who's responsible for shooting the deadly rounds? That would be Justin Rigney. And, and by the way, and again, and who's know, been exonerated by FDLE state, and state attorney's the PBSO. office, PBSO, FDLE. And you know, I tell people, look, take a look at the video. Tell me whether or not you see a knife in Ricky Witten's hand. Let me know whether or not you ever see his hand or arm come above his head or above his shoulder. And you know, just let the video speak for itself. And and clearly, I think the video shows exactly. 
exactly that Ricky Witten was not armed at the time uh, he was running away from these police officers. He was running away from these police officers because he was scared to death and he was trying to escape them. And by the way, the word escape is exactly the words that I elicited during these depositions that were taken of these deputies. And he had committed no crime. No crime. Yeah. So look. You show up on this person's property, and let's assume we concede that he was suicidal. Let's just assume he, at that moment in his life, he wanted the police to kill him. Let's just concede that fact. Does that mean that at that point, oh, as so law he enforcement, wanted suicide by cop? well, let's just well, that's their argument that he baited the cops to kill him. Well, in 40 some odd minutes that mom was on the phone with the 911 dispatcher, he didn't harm himself. He didn't harm mom and dad. Um, he didn't harm the niece. And when he came out of the house after he was confronted with this show of force, he didn't run towards them. He retreated. In fact, the video, which is indisputable, he's backpedaling away from them, trying to get away from them. Uh, have we gotten to the point where if, if someone is suicidal, we carry out their wish and we shoot and kill them? I think that is a very sad state in this day and age. Now, the mentality of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office at that point may have been, listen, let's just get this thing over with so you know we can go home. I, I just don't understand why you wait 45 minutes for the canine officer, well, in uh, this uh, case, Justin, and he shows up and he doesn't deploy the dog. Uh, uh, if it's a knife, I mean, if it's a gun, I can see. Clearly, and any mental health professional will tell you that the use or implementation of a dog, a German Shepherd who you know is very aggressive, and you understand these guys are wearing tactical gear and long guns and the ballistic shield, all that's going to do is escalate and, yeah, an already stressful him. situation. Right. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, the, the last thing, you know, just to put the cherry on the top of this uh, story is that after he was shot and, and he had fell to the ground, admittedly by all deputies, Justin Rigney then releases the canine dog. Oh, after he was shot. Right. But the canine dog, it tore his face off. <gasps> oh, no. Yes. And so there goes another piece of the puzzle here. Was he alive at the time? He was. He was gasping for his last breath. Now, Justin Rigney would like to try to suggest that the dog made a boo-boo and was going for his shoulder and just happened to slide up to his face. We know now, talking to canine professionals, there's something called a high-value reward, and that is to allow a canine dog to bite human flesh because for the next outing, it makes the dog that much more aggressive. Good grief. Yes, good Boy, grief. Boy, it just keeps getting worse. So January 13th, yes, you'll here be taking in, this- in federal court, West Palm Beach. Federal court, so we'll get back with you on what happens with that, but- I would anticipate some sort of a settlement coming in here. Also, I did a podcast on this uh, Trayvon Martin hoax, the Trayvon hoax video movie that was actually made by Hollywood director Joel Gilbert. I interviewed him. I had you listen to the podcast because as a result, George Zimmerman and um, uh, his attorney, who's representing him, are suing for $100 million because they're alleging that Remember, he went to trial for second-degree murder and was found not guilty. But that whole trial was brought because when Trayvon was trying to, uh, he was coming back from buying, what, a 
some Skittles and an Arizona iced tea, peach iced tea, and uh, he got into the scuffle with his neighborhood watch guy, George Zimmerman, uh, and he was on the phone with his girlfriend, they said at the time, Diamond, and he said, uh, this creepy-ass cracker's after me, which she said on the stand, but this girl, Diamond, uh, there was Rachel who made, was on the stand, but she said she was Diamond. And then there's Diamond, who's this attractive girl who went to FSU and she uh, was majored in criminal justice. Um, and Joel Gilbert is alleging that they knowingly put the different girl on the stand, who was like 150 pounds heavier and whatever. It was very strange. But that would be suborning perjury, and that's a that's a disbarable offense. And he said that he did actually go and find the real girlfriend the real diamond and i asked him well did you ask her did she tell you at all about being on the phone and what happened during that whole situation did it really traumatize her i did not ask her again because the goal of meeting her was to get her on film i was also in the middle of the investigation i hadn't actually gotten into her social media accounts yet so i didn't want to blow it and ask her about the case and then she might maybe erase her social media. So what do you think of this whole thing? Well, you know, you had me. You had me till hello. <laughs> but no, I listened to the entire podcast and I was very attentive. And then when you got to that point, I was like, this guy is full of poo-poo. I mean, clearly, then I don't understand why you would complete the, the film or release the film until you had all the facts. And so at some point... He says, you, I have no smoking gun. Then what, right. what are you alleging here? Right. So to me, it's a farce. Oh. And I... I look, How would the prosecutor actually knowingly put a different fake diamond on the stand? Look, sometimes truth is crazier than fiction. But in this particular situation, I cannot ever conceive that the prosecution or the state attorney's office or the police would act in concert to switch out... Uh, a witness, and at best, maybe I was thinking that maybe Trayvon Martin knew both girls, uh, um, you know, and uh, maybe he was cheating on one versus the other. But certainly not in any way did they substitute out this girl for the other. Uh, and by the way, I guess that's because, disbarable. No, no, well, not only disbarable. I mean, you could be obviously criminally prosecuted for obstruction that's of justice, right? Right. Suborning perjury. I mean, there's a whole litany. I mean, so, but people, why bring a hundred million time. dollar lawsuit? Well, again, you know, I can't speak for George Zimmerman because I think he's, you know, not someone that I would he's give. Like a, yeah, he's a walking train wreck. Instead of a dream catcher, yeah. he's like a poo-poo catcher. Yeah. No, and it, it's it's kind of surprising because the attorney that he retained to, you know, do this lawsuit is someone who has brought lawsuits in the past, uh, other high-profile cases. Maybe it, they just have a nuisance lawsuit yeah. here and they just want to get some sort of money. Or maybe this, uh, they have some deal with the filmmaker and they thought that this would somehow, you know, sell the film, you know, get the, and then they could withdraw the lawsuit. But I, I, if that in fact is the the motivation behind it, uh, you know, regardless of what you may or may not think uh, uh, that happened in this particular case, the Trayvon Martin family deserves to have closure, deserves to have dignity and respect and, and, and peace uh, and solace because at the end of the day, they lost their child. And that's something that sometimes yeah. is overlooked. And you can't just be dismissive of that. These people are not uh, deserving to get dragged through these frivolous type of uh, accusations. And of course, if you'd like to hear my full interview with Joel Gilbert, the Hollywood director of the Trayvon hoax, you can hear that in my previous podcast. And now switching gears and going back into the past, I want to talk to you about a tennis player that went missing on Palm Beach and then was stabbed in the back. Monica Selish. I like to say Monica Selish, but it's Selish. She was actually from Yugoslavia 
and she mysteriously went missing in 1991 from Wimbledon from the championships after winning all the other Grand Slams that year. She won the Australian. She won the French. She won the U.S. Open. But she didn't show up to Wimbledon in 1991. And I remember distinctly watching on my little 12-inch TV in my pumpkin-colored guest house behind the same colored estate in Flamingo Park, West Palm Beach, on a very hot July morning, Chris Everett asking the question, where's Monica Sellis? She hasn't showed up to Wimbledon. She's missing. Now, when I say it's hot, I mean, it's really hot. I had, it was a two-story little carriage house, and I had a window air conditioning unit upstairs. It was running full tilt, but I was watching TV downstairs, and it was just amazing. No one could figure out where Monica sell. It was like a big whodunit, or where is she? It was, it was a major head scratcher. I was perplexed. At the time, I was a health reporter and a morning anchor at the ABC affiliate in West Palm Beach, WPBF. And I was a runner. It was hot, of course. It was summer. And pondering the missing Monica Selish, I went for a run. So I'm living in West Palm Beach. And and I went running over the North Bridge, the Flagler Bridge. And it was so hot that I ran inside the Publix that is on Palm Beach because they have a drinking fountain. And I'm sweating. By this time, I've run like two miles. So I go to the fountain, which is right inside the doors of the Publix, and I take a drink, and I look up at the checkout line, and I see a very tall, slim girl standing there. And I think to myself, my God, that looks just like Monica Selish. And I take another sip of water, and I look again, and she's checking out with some friends, it looks like, and I kind of file it away, and go back to running. I get home and Chris Everett is still asking the question, where's Monica Sellish? She's not here at Wimbledon. And I'm thinking, I think I just saw her at the Publix on Palm Beach. So I call our sports anchor for the weekend, Craig Minervini. And I say, I think I found Monica Sellis. She's actually on Palm Beach. I saw her shopping at Publix. So in his sports report that night, he says, Monica Sellis isn't missing. Karen Curtis found her shopping at Publix. Well, the media frenzy ensued. I had calls from the Palm Beach Post. Emily Miner calls me up and asks me for an interview. Um, and she says, boy, you know, I had to take a photo of Monica Sellis to the Gardens Mall because I didn't know what she looks like. And I said, yeah, think about me. I know what she looks like. I'm a sports aficionado. And I knew what she looks like. And when I saw her, I should have gone up to her and asked her what was going on. But, and my quote was, I felt like a boob. I should have been more astute. Lemley Minor publishes this quote. I felt like such a boob. I should have been more astute. Goes to every newspaper. Even my running coach in Rochester, Michigan, is reading the Oakland Press. And that quote is in there. I was so embarrassed. Also, the Daily Mirror in London calls me up and asks me, well, what was she buying? What what items did she have in the checkout? I'm like, I don't know. They go, well, what kind of a reporter are you? Why didn't you look at this? You know, at the time, 1991, there's no iPhones. I could have taken, you know, 
a photo, tweeted it, Instagrammed it. Everything was much slower at the time. And they also asked me, what kind of a car did she get into? What's going on? I didn't know. I just said, I just saw her. She's on Palm Beach. So she was 17 years old at the time, and she had completed a sweep of all three of the Grand Slam events she played in 91. Again, Australian, French, and the U.S. Open. But Wimbledon missing. In fact, she never actually won Wimbledon after that at all, and I'll explain why. So why was Monica Seles on Palm Beach? She was the world's top-ranked woman tennis player, and she was actually then seen on the grounds of Mar-a-Lago at Trump's 18-acre estate. Apparently... The 17-year-old and her parents moved in to Trump's estate on his invitation a couple of days before Wimbledon to escape reporters. She apparently met Trump earlier in the year at the U.S. Open, which she won, and she apparently thanked Trump when she accepted the winning trophy, and the audience booed her. Things haven't changed. So at the time, Trump was married to Ivana, didn't divorce her and marry Marla Maples until 1993. But Trump... You know, his romantic escapades with Marla Maples were making headlines, but he had no designs on the teenager. He just thought that she was a nice girl and he admired her tennis skills. So there were many reports. They speculated that she was pregnant, suffering from shin splints or recovering from a minor car accident. Apparently, it was the middle one, shin splints. And shin splints, if you don't know what shin splints are, as a runner, I know exactly what they are. They can be extremely, extremely painful. It's uh, actually, it's pain along the shin bone, the tibia, the large bone in the front of your leg. And shin splints are common in runners, dancers, and military recruits because when they have to run on their boots. But usually when you modify your exercise routine, you get shin splints. So you basically need to rest them and ice them. But I had a friend, Mary Bauer, who was a runner with me in Hawaii, at the University of Hawaii. They were so bad, she had to have a fasciotomy. It was a surgery where the surgeon went in and actually cut the sheath around the muscle because the muscle was so inflamed, it was actually, the sheath was too tight. Kind of like cutting the sausage casing around a fat, painful sausage. So it can be very, very painful and very, very serious. Here's what Sellis said about it. I don't think it would have been fair for my leg to play Wimbledon feeling hurt, she said. And secondly, I couldn't play. I couldn't run on it. I mean, there was not a choice. If you step on your leg and it hurts, something is wrong there. And not playing was the correct choice. But not playing also turned out to be one of the worst things she could have done because her popularity level seemed to sink until it was as low as her visibility at the time. In 1992, it was an equally dominant year when she came back. She successfully defended her titles at the Australian, the French, and the U.S. Open. And she also reached her first ever final at Wimbledon, but she lost to Steffi Graf. And the whole reason behind that is that she had the propensity to do this. Salas, a left-hander, was a grunter, and she was a grunter ever since she was a little girl. I started playing tennis when I was a little girl at age six, and I grunted pretty much from day one because I was very tiny. I was always uh, on the smaller side, and I want and I put every single ounce of of my energy into that ball. So I grunted from my junior tournaments, and really even in professional tennis, way before I kind of any of the other players started complaining about it. The only difference was that by that point, I was number one in the world. Now, I can report that when she was in the checkout line at the Publix on Palm Beach instead of at Wimbledon, she wasn't grunting 
And she wasn't hobbled. She wasn't limping around on her leg. There was no cleanup in aisle five. So she appeared to be just fine. I mean, if you want to hear Grunter's Maria Sharapova today, it sounds like she's giving birth out on the court. I mean, grunting is like okay today. People started to complain about her grunting. So she had to actually stop. It's like asking a basketball player, do you breathe in or out on your layup? (laughs) It just screws you up. And so... Because they complained, she stopped grunting for that Wimbledon. I didn't even notice that I was grunting, but at the Wimbledon tennis tournament down in London, England, they actually brought out a gruntometer. So what the hell is a, a gruntometer, a gruntometer? I mean, what, <laughs> what does it measure? It, decibels? I mean, how silly is that? Those same players I played a few weeks before and didn't complain, but unfortunately I was playing such good tennis that uh, they just had to find any single thing to, I think, try to rattle my mental concentration. And unfortunately, they succeeded, uh, but thankfully only for that uh, single tournament. That was Celis in 2009 talking to WNYC, but back in 1992 at Wimbledon, Never to Live complained to the chair umpire about the grunting after Celis went up a break 4-2. <laughs> be a little distracting, but Jimmy Connors was a major grunter even before Celis was born. She was able to beat Martina Navratilova without grunting, but then she was up against her arch rival, Steffi Graf, who beat her. And largely because of the massive media criticism of her grunting. And also there were constant rain delays during the second set. In fact, today, Celis says her biggest regret was to stop grunting during that Wimbledon because it affected her play and she never won Wimbledon. She was trying to please people instead of win. But in April of 1993, the rivalry was temporarily halted when a fan of Steffi Graf stabbed Celis on court with a five-inch blade in the back, narrowly missing her spine. (laughs) I remember sitting on the bench. I was just like thinking uh, to myself, I should change. I'm giving my opponent a little bit of too much what she liked. And then suddenly I just felt like, such a hard pain, like sharp pain in me. It's like, ooh. And then I, just, I wanted to touch what's in there, and I just saw blood. I never, ever expected something like this to happen. And, you know, whenever I think about it, it's just very hard. Literally being stabbed in the back, very scary for her. It was April 30th during a quarterfinal match. It was against Magdalena Maleva in Hamburg, and... Salas was leading, and Gunter Parch, an obsessed fan of Stuffy Graf, ran from the middle of the crowd to the edge of the court during a break between games and stabbed Salas with a boning knife between her shoulder blades. Now, the physical injuries took a few weeks to heal. They took her to the hospital. Actually, Stuffy Graf visited her in the hospital. But she didn't return to competitive tennis for more than two years. And German authorities say that the attacker was... Confused and possibly mentally disturbed. Initially, they thought it was because she was from Yugoslavia. And at that time, uh, Yugoslavia and Croatia was breaking free from Yugoslavia. So there was all kinds of turmoil going on there. But Parch was mentally disturbed. He was charged following the incident, but only spent less than six months in pretrial detention, which kind of perturbed Celis because he didn't really get much of a punishment. But the incident did prompt an increase in the level of security at those big events. And at that year's Wimbledon, the player seats were positioned with their backs to the umpire's chair rather than to the spectators. 
During the height of her career, the 1990 French Open through the 1993 Australian Open, she won eight of the 11 Grand Slam singles tournaments she played in. With eight Grand Slam singles titles before her 20th birthday, she also holds the record for most Grand Slam singles titles won by a teenager in the Open era, except, of course, for Wimbledon. So in April of 2009, Celis released her memoir, Getting a Grip, on my body, my mind, myself, which chronicled her bout with depression. She gained 20 pounds after she was stabbed. Her father was diagnosed with cancer and eventually died. Her journey back to the game and life beyond tennis, and believe it or not, today, Celis is married to businessman Tom Galassano, who's 32 years her senior. And he's a billionaire. He's worth like three, four billion bucks. They began dating in 2009, announced their engagement in 2014, and they're still married today. And she, by the way, lost the weight on her own. And she looks fantastic, actually, today. I think I would recognize her today, but when I recognized her back then, this waif of a girl with short blonde hair, really long, gangly arms. I mean, she was so athletic-looking. And you know when you see your teacher in the grocery store and you're like, oh, my God, your teacher actually eats food? It's like seeing someone in the grocery store like that. They're out of place. So it took me a while to realize what I had seen. And of course, today, I probably would have had a phone with me if it happened today, and I could have taken a picture and it would have gone viral. It's just amazing how things have changed since back then with Chris Ever going, where's Monica Sellis and me running into Publix and seeing her there? It just didn't compute right off the bat. It's kind of interesting. Monica Sellis is married to a billionaire, and now Trump, who is also a billionaire, is president of the United States. He's always somehow been in the public eye. He's always got his finger on the pulse of what's going on. And he just seems to always be in the media. In fact, as I record this podcast today, he's four miles away from me to my east at Mar-a-Lago, spending the Christmas and New Year holiday at the Winter White House, which is now officially his home. We always welcome the president in Palm Beach County. And Monica Sellis, too, if she ever returns. And keep grunting. That wraps up Full Rigor. Until next time, thanks for joining me. Peloton, let's go! This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you. With Black Friday savings at the Home Depot, you'll find top brand kitchen appliances with innovative features that can do more so your holidays can be more. Ovens with built-in air fryers for baking the perfect cookies. Dishwashers with smart tech to clean everything from bakeware to festive mugs. And high-capacity refrigerators to keep leftovers fresh. Shop Black Friday savings and get up to 30% off, plus instantly save up to $750 on select GE kitchen packages at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Offer valid November 2nd through November 30th. U.S. only. See store or online for details.